Section 63 of London Labour and the London Poor, Volume 2, by Henry Mayhew. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Effects of Casual Labour in General, Part 2. Such, then, are the several modes of work by which labour is cheapened. There are, as we have seen, but two ways of directly effecting this, namely, first by making men do more work for the same pay, and secondly, by making them do the same work for less pay. The way in which men are made to do more, it has been pointed out, is by causing them either to work longer or quicker, or else by employing fewer hands in proportion to the work, or engaging them only for such time as their services are required, and discharging them immediately afterwards. These constitute the several modes of economising labour, which lowers the rate of remuneration, the ratio of the pay to the work, rather than the pay itself. The several means by which this result is attained are termed systems of work, production or engagement, and such are those above detailed. Now, it is a necessity of these several systems, though the actual amount of remuneration is not directly reduced by them, that a cheaper labour should be obtained for carrying them out. Thus, in contract or lump work, perhaps, the price may not be immediately lowered, the saving to the employer consisting chiefly in supervision, he having in such a case only one man to look to, instead of perhaps a hundred. The contractor, or lumper, however, is differently situated. He, in order to reap any benefit from the contract, must, since he cannot do the whole work himself, employ others to help him, and to reap any benefit from the contract, this of course must be done at a lower price than he himself receives. So it is with the middleman system, where profit is derived from the labour of other operatives. So again with the domestic system of work, where the several members of the family, or cheaper labourers, are generally employed as assistants. And even so is it with the small master system, where the labour of apprentices and wives and children is the principal means of help. Hence the operatives adopting these several systems of work are rather the instruments by which cheap labour is obtained than the cheap labourers themselves. It is true that a sweater, a chambermaster or garret master, a lumper or contractor, or a home worker, generally works cheaper than the ordinary operatives. But this he does chiefly by the cheap labourers he employs, and then finding that he is able to underwork the rest of the trade, and that the more hands he employs, the greater becomes his profit, he offers to do work at less than the usual rate. It is not a necessity of the system that the middleman operative, the domestic worker, the lumper or garret master, should be himself underpaid, but simply that he should employ others who are so. And it is thus that such systems of work tend to cheapen the labour of those trades in which they are found to prevail. Who then are the cheap labourers? Who the individuals, by means of whose services, the sweater, the smaller master, the lumper and others, is enabled to underwork the rest of his trade? What the general characteristics of those who, in the majority of handicrafts, are found ready to do the same work for less pay, 
and how are these usually distinguished from such as obtain the higher rate of remuneration? The cheap workmen in all trades, I find, are divisible into three classes. One, the unskilful. Two, the untrustworthy. Three, the inexpensive. First, as regards the unskilful. Long ago it has been noticed how frequently boys were put to trades to which their tastes and temperaments were antagonistic. Gay, who in his quiet, unpretending style often elicited a truth, tells how a century and a half ago the generality of parents never considered for what business a boy was best adapted. But even in infancy decree, what this or t'other son shall be? A boy thus brought up to a craft for which he entertains a dislike can hardly become a proficient in it. At the present time, thousands of parents are glad to have their sons reared to any business which their means or opportunities place within their reach, even though the lad be altogether unsuited to the craft. The consequence is that these boys often grow up to be unskilful workmen. There are technical terms for them in different trades, but perhaps the generic appellation is muffs. Such workmen, however well conducted, can rarely obtain employment in a good shop at good wages, and are compelled therefore to accept second, third and fourth rate wages, and are often driven to slop work. Other causes may be cited as tending to form unskilful workmen. The neglect of masters or foremen, or their incapacity to teach apprentices irregular habits in the learner, and insufficient practice during a master's paucity of employment. I am assured, moreover, that hundreds of mechanics yearly come to London from the country parts, whose skill is altogether inadequate to the demands of the honourable trade. Of course, during the finishing of their education, they can only work for inferior shops at inferior wages. Hence, another cause of cheap labour. Of this I will cite an instance. A bootmaker, who for years had worked for first-rate West End shops, told me that when he came to London from a country town, he was sanguine of success, because he knew that he was a ready man, a quick workman. He very soon found out, however, he said, that as he aspired to do the best work, he had his business to learn all over again, and until he attained the requisite skill, he worked for just what he could get. He was a cheap, because then an unskilful, labourer. There is moreover the cheaper labour of apprentices, the great prop of many a slop trader. For as such traders disregard all the niceties of work, as they disregard also the solidity and perfect finish of any work, finishing it, as it was once described to me, just to the eye, a lad is soon made useful, and his labour remunerative to his master, as far as slop remuneration goes, which, though small in a small business, is wealth in a monster business. There are again the improvers. These are the most frequent in the dressmaking and millinery business, as young women find it impossible to form a good connection among a wealthier class of ladies in any country town, unless the patronesses are satisfied that their skill and taste have been perfected in London. In my inquiry, in the course of two letters in the Morning Chronicle, into the condition of the workwomen in this calling, I was told by a retired dressmaker, who
who had for upwards of twenty years carried on business in the neighbourhood of Grosvenor Square, that she had sometimes met with improvers so tasteful and quick, from a good provincial tuition, that they had really little or nothing to learn in London, and yet their services were secured for one and oftener for two years merely for board and lodging, while others employed in the same establishment had not only board and lodging, but handsome salaries. The improvers, then, is generally a cheap labour, and often a very cheap labour too. The same form of cheap labour prevails in the carpenter's trade. There is, moreover, the labour of old men, a tailor, for instance, who may have executed the most skilled work of his craft. In his old age, or before the period of old age, finds his eyesight fail him, finds his tremulous fingers have not a full and rapid mastery of the needle, and he then labours, at greatly reduced rates of payment, on the making of soldier's clothing, sane work, as it is called, or on any ill-paid and therefore ill-wrought labour. Note, the term sane, in sane work, is the Norman word for blood, Latin sanguis, French sang, so that sane work means literally bloody work, this called either from the sanguinary trade of the soldier or from the blood-red colour of the cloth. End note. The inferior, as regards the quality of the work, and underpaid class of women, in tailoring, for example, again cheapen labour. It is cheapened also by the employment of Irishmen, in perhaps all branches of skilled or unskilled labour, and of foreigners, more especially of Poles, who are inferior workmen to the English, and who will work very cheap, thus supplying a low-price labour to those who seek it. I may remark further that if a first-rate workman be driven to slop work, he soon loses his skill. He can only work slop. This has been shown over and over again, and so his labour becomes cheap in the market. 2. Of untrustworthy labour, as a cause of cheap labour, I need not say much. It is obvious that a drunken, idle or dishonest workman or workwoman, when pressed by want, will and must labour, not for the recompense the labour merits, but for whatever pittance an employer will accord. There is no reliance to be placed in him. Such a man cannot hold out for terms, for he is perhaps starving, and it is known that he cannot be depended upon. In the sweeps trade, many of those who work at a lower rate than the rest of the trade are men who have lost their regular work by dishonesty. 3. The inexpensive class of workpeople are very numerous. They consist of three subdivisions. A. Those who have been accustomed to a coarser kind of diet, and who consequently, requiring less, can afford to work for less. B. Those who derive their subsistence from other sources, and who consequently do not live by their labour. C. Those who are in receipt of certain aids to their wages, or who have other means of living beside their work. Of course, these causes can alone have influence where the wages are minimised or reduced to the lowest ebb of subsistence, in which case they become so many means of driving down the price of labour still lower. A. Those who being what is designated hard-reared, that is to say, accustomed to a scantier or coarser diet, 
and who therefore can do with a less quantity or less expensive quality of food than the average run of labourers, can of course live at a lower cost, and so afford to work at a lower rate. Among such unskilled labourers are the peasants from many of the counties, who seek to amend their condition by obtaining employment in the towns. I will instance the agricultural labourers of Dorsetshire. Bread and potatoes, writes Mr. Thornton, in his work on overpopulation and its remedy, page 21, do really form the staple of their food. As for meat, most of them would not know its taste, if once or twice in the course of their lives, on the squire's having a son and heir born to him, or on the young gentleman's coming of age, they were not regaled with a dinner of what the newspapers call Old English Fair. Some of them contrived to have a little bacon, in the proportion it seems of half a pound a week to a dozen persons. But they more commonly use fat to give the potatoes a relish, and as one of them said to Mr. Austin, a commissioner, they don't always go without cheese. With many poor Irishmen, the rearing has been still harder. I had some conversation with an Irish rubbish carter, who had been thrown out of work and was entitled to no allowance from any trade society, in consequence of a strike by Mr. Meyer's men. On my asking him how he subsisted in Ireland, Well then, sir, he said, and it's God's truth. I once lived for days on green things I picked up by the roadside, and the turnips and that sort of meat I stole from the fields. It was called stealing, but it was the hunger, did was it? That was in the county Limerick, sir, in the famine and viction times, and glory be to God, I escaped when others didn't. I may observe that the chief local paper, the Limerick and Clare Examiner, published twice a week, gave twice a week at the period of the famine and evictions, statements similar to that of my informant. Now, would not a poor man, reared as the Limerick peasant I have spoken of, who was actually driven to eat the grass, which biblical history shows was once a signal punishment to a great offender, would not such a man work for the veriest dole, rather than again be subjected to the pangs of hunger? In my inquiries among the costermongers, one of them said of the Irish in his trade, and without any bitterness, "'They'll work for nothing, and live on less!' The meaning is obvious enough, although the assertion is, of course, a contradiction in itself. This department of labour, says Mr. Baines in his History of the Handloom Weavers, is greatly overstocked, and the price necessarily falls. The evil is aggravated by the multitudes of Irish who have flocked into Lancashire, some of whom, having been linen weavers, naturally resort to the loom, and others learn to weave as the easiest employment they can adopt. Accustomed to a wretched mode of living in their own country, they are contented with wages that would starve an English labourer. They have, in fact, so lowered the rate of wages as to drive many of the English out of the employment, and to drag down those who remain in it to their own level. b. Those who derive their subsistence from other sources can of course afford to work cheaper than those who have to live by their labour. To this class belongs the labour of wives and children, who, being supposed to be maintained by the toil of the husband, are never paid living wages for what they do, and hence the misery of the great mass of needlewomen, widows, unmarried and friendless females, and the like, 
who having none to assist them, are forced to starve upon the pittance they receive for their work. The labour of those who are in prisons, workhouses and asylums, and who consequently have their subsistence found them in such places, as well as the work of prostitutes, who obtain their living by other means than work, all come under the category of those who can afford to labour at a lower rate than such as are condemned to toil for an honest living. It is the same with apprentices and improvers, for whose labour the instruction received is generally considered to be either a sufficient or partial recompense, and who consequently look to other means for their support. Under the same head, too, may be cited the labour of amateurs, that is to say, of persons who either are not, or who are too proud to acknowledge themselves, regular members of the trade at which they work. Such is the case with very many of the daughters of tradesmen, and of many who are considered genteel people. These young women, residing with their parents, and often in comfortable homes, at no cost to themselves, will and do undersell the regular needlewomen. The one works merely for pocket money, often to possess herself of some article of finery, while the other works for what is called the bare life. C. The last-mentioned class, or those who are in possession of what may be called aids to wages, are differently circumstanced. Such are the men who have other employment besides that for which they accept less than the ordinary pay, as is the case with those who attend at gentlemen's houses for one or two hours every morning, cleaning boots, brushing clothes, and so on, and who, having the remainder of the day at their own disposal, can afford to work at any calling cheaper than others, because not solely dependent upon it for their living. The army and navy pensioners, non-commissioned officers and privates, were at one period on the disbanding of the militia and other forces a very numerous body, but it was chiefly the military pensioners whose position had an effect upon the labour of the country. The naval pensioners found employment as fishermen, or in some avocation connected with the sea. The military pensioners, however, were men who, after a career of soldiership, were not generally disposed to settle down into the drudgery of regular work, even if it were in their power to do so. And so, as they always had their pensions to depend upon, they were a sort of universal jobbers, and jobbed cheaply. At the present time, however, this means of cheap labour is greatly restricted, compared with what was the case, the number of the pensioners being considerably diminished. Many of the army pensioners turn the wheels for turners at present. The allotment of gardens, which yield a partial support to the allottee, are another means of cheap labour. The allotment demands a certain portion of time, but is by no means a thorough employment, but merely an aid, and consequently a means to low wages. Such a man has the advantage of obtaining his potatoes and vegetables at the cheapest rate, and so can afford to work cheaper than other men of his class. It was the same formerly with those who received relief under the old poor law. And even under the present system, it has been found that the same practice is attended with the same result. In the sixth annual report of the Poor Law Commissioners, 1840, at page 31, there are the following remarks on the subject. Quote, 
Whilst upon the subject of relief to widows in aid of wages, we must not omit to bring under your lordship's notice an illustration of the depressing effect which is produced by the practice of giving relief in aid of wages to widows upon the earnings of females. Colonel Accord states, As regards females, the instance to which I have alluded presents itself in the Portsea Island Union, where from the insufficiency of workhouse accommodation, as well as from benevolent feelings, small allowances of one shilling sixpence or two shillings a week are given to widows with or without small children, or to married women deserted by their husbands. Having this certain income, however small, they are enabled to work at lower wages than those who do not possess this advantage. The consequence is that competition has enabled the shirt and stay manufacturers, who abound in the union, and who furnish in great measure the London as well as many foreign markets with these articles of their trade, to get their work done at the extraordinary low prices of stays complete ninepence, shirts from one shilling to one shilling sixpence per dozen. The women all declare that they cannot possibly, after working from twelve to fifteen hours per day, earn more than one shilling sixpence per week. The manufacturers assert that by steady work, four shillings to six shillings a week may be earned under ordinary circumstances. In the meantime, the demand for workwomen increases, and it is by no means unusual to see handbills posted over the town requiring from five hundred to one thousand additional stitchers. End quote. Such, then, is the character of the cheap workers in all trades. Go where we will, we shall find the low-priced labour of the trade to consist of either one or other of the three classes above mentioned, while the means by which this labour is brought into operation will be generally by one of the systems of work before specified. The cheap labour of the rubbish carters' trade appears to be a consequence of two distinct antecedents, namely casual labour and the prevalence of the contract system among builders' work. The smallmaster system also appears to have some influence upon it. First, as regards the influence of casual labour in reducing the ordinary rate of wages. The tables given at page 290, volume 2, showing the wages paid to the rubbish carters, present what appears, and indeed is, a strange discrepancy of payment to the labourers in rubbish carting. About three-fourths of the rubbish carters throughout London receive 18 shillings weekly when in work. In Hampstead, however, the rate of their wages is uniformly 20 shillings a week. In Lambeth, but less uniformly, it is 19 shillings. In Wandsworth, 17 shillings. In Islington, 16 shillings. And in Greenwich, 14 shillings and 12 shillings. The character of the work, whether executed for 12 shillings or 20 shillings weekly, is the same. Why then can a rubbish carter who works at Hampstead earn eight shillings a week more than one who works at Greenwich? An employer of rubbish carters and of similar labourers on a large scale, a gentleman thoroughly conversant with the subject in all its industrial bearings, accounts for the discrepancy in this manner. After the corn and the hop harvests have terminated, there is always an influx of unskilled labourers into Gravesend, Woolwich and Greenwich. These are the men who, from the natural bent of their dispositions, or from the necessity of their circumstances, 
resort to the casual labour afforded by the revolution of the seasons, when to gather the crops before the weather may render the harvest precarious and its produce unsound, is a matter of paramount necessity, and the increase of hands employed during this season is, as a consequence, proportionately great. The chief scene of such labour in the neighbourhood of the metropolis is in the county of Kent, and on the cessation of this work, of course there is a large amount of labour turned adrift, to seek the next few days for any casual employment that may turn up. In this way, I am assured, a large amount of cheap and unskilled labour is being constantly placed at the command of those masters who, so to speak, occupy the line of march to London, and are therefore first applied to for employment by casual labourers, who, when engaged, are employed as inferior or unskilful workmen at an inferior rate of remuneration. Greenwich may be looked upon as the first stage or halt for casual labourers on their way to London. My informant assured me, as the result of his own observations, that an English labourer would, as a general rule, execute more work by one-sixth in a week than an Irish labourer. A large proportion of the casual hands are Irish. That is, the extent of work which would occupy the Irishman six would occupy the Englishman but five days, were it so calculated. The Englishman was, however, usually more skilled and persevering, and far more to be depended upon. So different was the amount of work, even in rubbish carting, between an able and experienced hand and one unused to the toil, or one inadequate from want of alertness or body strength or any other cause, to its full and quick execution, that two good men in a week have done as much work as three indifferent hands. Thus two men at eighteen shillings weekly each are as cheap, only employers cannot always see it, when they are thorough masters of their business, as three unready hands at twelve shillings a week each. The misfortune, however, is that the twelve shillings a week men have a tendency to reduce the sixteen shillings to their level. With regard to the difference between the wages of Hampstead and Greenwich, I am informed that stationary working rubbish carters are not too numerous in Hampstead, which is considered as rather out of the way, and as that metropolitan suburb is surrounded in every direction by pasture land and woodland, it is not in the line of resort of the class of men who seek the casual labour in harvesting and so on, of which I have spoken. It is rarely visited by them, and consequently the regular hands are less interfered with than elsewhere, and wages have not been deteriorated. The mode of work among the scurf labourers differs somewhat from that of the honourable part of the trade, the work executed by the scurf masters being for the most part on a more limited scale than that of the others. To meet the demands of builders or of employers generally when time is an object, demands the use of relays of men, and of strong horses. This demand the smaller or scurf-master cannot always meet. He may find men, but not always horses and carts, and he will often enough undertake work beyond his means, and endeavour to aggrandise his profits by screwing his labourers. The hours of scurf-employed labour are nominally the same as the regular trade, but, as an Irish carter said, it's rarely the hours the master pleases, and they're often as long as it's light. 
The scurf labourer is often paid by the day, with a day's hire and no notice beyond. I am informed that scurf labourers generally work an hour a day, without extra remuneration, longer than those in the honourable trade. The rubbish carters employed by the scurf masters are not as a body, I am assured, so badly paid as they were a few years back. It is rarely that labouring men can advance any feasible reason for the changes in their trade. One of the main causes of the deteriorated wages of the rubbish carters is the system of contracting and subletting. This, however, is but a branch of the ramified system of subletting in the construction of the scamped houses of the speculative builders. The building of such houses is sublet, literally from cellar to chimney. The rubbish carting may be contracted for at a certain sum. The contractor may sublet it to men who will do it for one-fourth less, perhaps, and who may sublet the labour in their turn. For instance, the calculation may be founded on the working men's receiving 15 shillings weekly. A contractor, a man possessing a horse perhaps, and a couple of carts, and hiring another horse, will undertake it on the knowledge of his being able to engage men at 12 shillings or 13 shillings weekly, and so obtain a profit. Indeed, the reduction of price in such cases must all come out of the labour. This subletting, I say, is but a small part of the gigantic system, and it is an unquestionable cause of the grinding down of the rubbish carter's wages, and that by a class who have generally been working men themselves, and risen to be the owners of one or two carts and horses. From one of these men, now a working carter, I had the following account, which further illustrates the mode of labour as well as of employment. I got a little ahead, he stated, from railway jobbing and such like, and my father-in-law, as soon as I got married, made me a present of twenty pounds, unexpected. I started for myself, thinking to get on by degrees and get a fresh horse and cart every year. But it couldn't be done, sir. If I offered to take a contract to cart the rubbish and dig it, a builder would say, I can't wait, you haven't carts and horses enough from your own account, and I can't wait. If you have to hire them, I can do that myself. I was too honest, sir, in telling the plain truth, or I might have got more jobs. It's not a good trade in a small way, for if your horses aren't at work, they're eating their heads off, and you're fretting your heart out. Then I got to do subcontracting, as you call it. No, it weren't that, it was underworking. I'd go to Mr. V, as I knew, and say, You're on such a place, sir, have you room for me? I think not, he'd say. I've only the regular thing and no advantages. Ten shillings sixpence for a day's work, horse and cart, or four shillings a load. Those are the regular terms. Then I'd say, well, sir, I'll do it for eight shillings sixpence and be my own carman. And so perhaps I'd get the job. And masters often say, I know I shall lose at ten shillings sixpence, but if I don't, you shall have something over. Get anything over? Of course not, sir. I could have lived if I had constant work for two horses and carts, for I would have got a cheap man, such as me must get cheap men, to drive the second cart, and under my own eye, whenever I could. But one of my poor horses broke his leg, and had to be sent to the knackers, and I sold the other and my carts, and have worked ever since as a labouring man, mainly at pipe work. 
Oh, yes, and rubbish carting. I get eighteen shillings a week now, but not regular. Well, sir, I'm sure I can't say, and I think no man could say, how much there's doing in subcontracting. If I'm at work in Cannon Street, I don't know what's doing at Notting Hill, or beyond Bow and Stratford. No, I'm satisfied there's not so much of it as there was, but it's done so on the sly. Who knows how much is done still, or how little. It's a system as may be carried on a long time, and is carried on, as far as men's labour goes, but it's different where there's horses and stable rent. They can't be screwed or underfed beyond a certain pitch, or they couldn't work at all, and so there's not as much underwork about horse labour. These small men are among the scurf and petty rubbish carters, and are often the means of depressing the class to which they have belonged. The employment in the honourable trade at rubbish carting would be one of the best among unskilled labourers were it continuous, but it is not continuous, and three-fourths of those engaged in it have only six months' work at it in the year. In the scurf-master's employ, the work is really casual, or, as I heard it quite as often described, chance. In both departments of this trade, the men out of work look for a job in scavagery, and very generally in night work, or indeed in any labour that offers. The Irish rubbish carters will readily become hawkers of apples, oranges, walnuts, and even nuts, when out of employ, so working in concert with their wives. I heard of only four instances of a similar resource by the English rubbish carters. What I have said of the education, religion, politics, concubinage, and so on and so on, of the better paid rubbish carters would have but to be repeated if I described those of the underpaid. The latter may be more reckless when they have the means of enjoyment, but their diet, amusements and expenditure would be the same were their means commensurate. As it is, they sometimes live very barely and have hardly any amusements at their command. Their dinners, when single men, are often bread and a saveloy, when married, sometimes tea and bread and butter, and occasionally some block ornaments, the Irish being the principal consumers of cheap fish. The labour of the wives of rubbish carters is far more frequently that of charwomen than of needlewomen, for the great majority of these women, before their marriage, were servant maids. All the information I received was concurrent in that respect. The wife of a carman who keeps a chandler's shop near the Edgware Road, greatly resorted to by the class to which her husband belonged, told me that, out of somewhere about twenty-five wives of rubbish carters or similar workmen whom she knew, twenty had been domestic servants. What the others had been she did not know. "'I can tell you, sir,' said the woman, "'charring is far better than needlework, far.' If a young woman has conducted herself well in service, she can get charring, and then if she conducts herself well again, she makes good friends. That's, of course, if they're honest, sir. I know it from experience. My husband, before we were able to open this shop, was in the hospital a long time, and I went out charring, and did far better than a sister I have who is a capital shirt-maker. There's broken victuals sometimes for your children." It's a hard world, sir, but there's a many good people in it. One woman, before mentioned, earned not less than five shillings weekly in superior shirt-making, as it was described to me, 
which was evidently looked upon as a handsome remuneration for such toil. Another earned three shillings sixpence, another two shillings sixpence, and others with uncertain employ, two shillings, one shilling sixpence, and in some weeks nothing. Needlework, however, is, I am informed, not the work of one-tenth of the rubbish carters' wives, whatever the earnings of the husband. From all I could learn, too, the wives of the underpaid rubbish carters earned more, by from ten to twenty per cent, than those of the better paid. The earnings of a charwoman in average employ, as regards the wives of the rubbish carters, is about four shillings weekly, without the exhausting toil of the needlewoman and with the advantage of sometimes receiving broken meat, dripping, fat, and so on and so on. The wives of the Irish labourers in this trade are often all the year street sellers, some of wash leathers, some of cabbage nets, and some of fruit, clearing perhaps from sixpence to ninepence a day, if used to street trading, as the majority of them are. The underpaid labourers in this trade are chiefly poor Irishmen, the Irish workmen in this branch of the trade have generally been brought up on the land, as they call it, in their own country, and after the sufferings of many of them during the famine, twelve shillings a week is regarded as a rise in the world. From one of this class I learned the following particulars. He seemed a man of twenty-six or twenty-eight. "'I was brought up on the land, sir,' he said, "'not far from Cullen, in the county Wexford.' I lived with my father and mother, and sure we were badly off, sure than we were. Father and mother, the heaven be their bed, died one soon after another, and some friends raised me the means to come to this country. Well then indeed, sir, and I can't say how they raised them, God reward them. I got to Liverpool and walked to London, where I had some relations. I sold oranges in the streets the first day I was in London. God help me, I was glad to do anything to get a male's mate. I've lived on sixpence a day sometimes, I have indeed. There was tuppence for the lodging, and fourpence for the mate, the tea, and bread and butter. Did I live harder than that in Ireland, Your Honour? Well, then I have. I've lived on a dish of potatoes that might cost a penny there, where things is beautiful and cheap. Not like this country, no, no. I wouldn't care to go back. I have no friends there now. Then I got engaged by a man. Yes, he was a rubbish carter to help him to fill his cart, and then we shot it on some new garden grounds, and had to shovel it about to make the grounds level, afore the topsoil was put on, for the beautiful flowers and the gravel walks. Tim, yes, he was a countryman of mine, but a cork man, said he'd made a bad bargain, for he was bad off, and he only cleared fourpence a load, and he'd divided with me. We did six loads in a day, and I got one shilling every night for a week. That was a rise. But one Sunday evening I was standing talking with people as lived in the same court, and I told how I was helping Tim, and two Englishmen came to find four men as they wanted for work, and old Reagan told them what I was working for, and one of them said I was a bee Irish fool, and old Reagan said so, and words came on, and then there was a fight, and the police came, and then the fight was harder. I was taken to the station, and had a month. I had two black eyes next morning, but was willing to forget and forgive. No, I'm not fond of fighting. I'm a paceable man, glory be to God, and I think I was put on. 
Oh, yes, and indeed then, Your Honour, it was a fair fight. I inquired of an English rubbish carter as to these fair fights. He knew nothing of the one in question, but had seen such fights. They were usually among the Irish themselves, but sometimes Englishmen were drawn into them. Fair fights, sir, he said. Why, the Irishes don't stand up to you like men. They don't fight like Christians, sir, not a bit of it. They kick and scratch and bite, and tear like devils or cats or women. They're soon settled if you can get an honest knock at them, but it isn't easy. I served my month, continued my Irish informant, and it ain't a bad place at all, the prison. I told the gentleman that had charge of us that I was a Roman Catholic, God be praised, and couldn't go to his prayers. Oh, very well, Pat, says he, and next day the priest came, and we were shown in to him, and very angry he was, and said our conduct was a disgrace to religion, and to our country, and to him. Do I think he was right, sir? God knows he was, or he wouldn't have said so. I hadn't been out of prison two hours before I was hired for a job at ten shillings a week. It was in the city, and I carried old bricks and rubbish along planks from the inside of a place as was pulled down, but the outside, all but the roof, was standing until the window frames and the doorposts and what other timber there was, was sold. It was dreadful hard work, carrying the basket of rubbish on your back to the cart. The dust came through and stuck to my neck, for I was wet all over with sweating so. Every man was allowed a pint of beer a day, and I thought never anything was so sweet. I don't know who gave it, the master, I suppose. Well then, sir, I don't know who was the master. It was John Riley as engaged me, but he's no master. Yes then, and I've been working that way ever since. I've sometimes had fourteen shillings a week, and sometimes ten shillings, and sometimes twelve shillings. A man like me must take what he can get, and I will take it. I've been out of work sometimes, but not so much as some, for I'm young and strong. No, I can't save no money, and I have nothing just now to save it for. When I'm out of work, I sell fruit in the streets. This statement, then, as regards the Irish labourers, shows the quality of the class employed. The English labourers, working on the same terms, are of the usual class of men so working, broken-down men, unable, or accounting themselves unable, to do better, and so accepting any offer affording the means of their daily bread. End of section 63